0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Happy Veterans Weekend. I guess Veterans Day was Thursday, but we're still on Veterans Weekend. And I just always want to say thank you to our veterans for you guys, for your service. And we appreciate what you've done to keep us free. We appreciate that. We understand that freedom is never free, and um, to have men and women who are willing to go into harm's way to make sure we can do stuff like what we're doing right now. Uh, We never take that for granted, and we appreciate your service and your sacrifice for your country. Thank you. Let's pray together. Yeah. Thanks, our vets. Pray with me. Father, we... uh, we're grateful to live in the kind of place we live where we can stand and, in complete freedom. Open your word and uh, let it say what it says. And that's our, that's our hope today, that your word would say what you intend for it to be said and that you would use it to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I talk about sacrifice and service. We're kind of talking about that in the book of Romans. And we're to the point where we're talking about grace and giving grace, sacrificing. That's the whole theme of Romans chapter 14. Take your Bibles out, turn on your devices, whatever you do, whatever you use to Romans chapter 14. And, and I've said this many times as we've dealt with this. The book of Romans is, you know, it's basically getting grace, Romans 1 through 11, and dealing with our need for grace. And that's really the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel and the fundamental problem with man is not that we have a bad self-image, it's not poverty, it's not all these other things that they talk about. The problem with man is sin, and sin ruins everything. It separates us from God, it destroys our lives, it does all of that, and sin brings us under judgment. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and that means that no amount of good that I ever do will make up for any sin that I've ever done. I can't overcome my problem because I'm under that death sentence. And so Jesus did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He went to the cross. The theological term for that is substitutionary atonement. The one who was without sin became sin on our behalf. He took the full punishment of your sin upon himself on the cross and satisfied the wrath of God. So that when we place our faith in what Christ did on the cross, receive his grace unto ourselves, our lives are covered with that grace. All the sin we ever did, All the sin we do and all the sin we ever will do is forgiven and forgotten because of Jesus. Isn't that good news? That's why we call it the gospel. It's good news. That's getting grace. But then after God declares us to be the righteousness of Christ by virtue of what Jesus did, and that word is an accounting term, he credits to your spiritual account all the grace you'll ever need to cover all the sin you'll ever do. I'm now justified in Christ, but now I begin to live out that justification through sanctification as my life begins to demonstrate what Christ has already done. And so not only do I get grace, I live grace. And a part of living grace is giving grace. And so that's how Romans breaks out. It's getting grace, living grace, giving grace. And Romans 14 is dealing with giving grace to people who are more immature in the faith. You see, when people come into faith, they come from all different backgrounds and perspectives, and they're coming from all, they're coming at all different paces. And, and when it comes to spiritual growth, we're all moving at a different pace. Ray Stedman compares it to walking on a suspension bridge. Listen to what he said. I liken this to crossing a swinging bridge over a mountain stream. There are people who can run across a bridge like that, even though it does not have any handrails. They're not alarmed by it. They can keep their balance well. They're not concerned about the swaying of the bridge or the danger of falling into the torrent below. That's fine. Some people can do that, but others cannot. You watch them go out on a bridge like that, and they're very uncertain. They shake and tremble. They inch along. They may even get down on their hands and knees and crawl across, but they'll make it if you just give them time, if you let them set their own speed. After a few crossings, they begin to pick up courage, and eventually they're able to run right across. There are people all over our bridge, all over the church, all within our circles of influence, who are walking at different paces. And some of them are on all, you know, I can appreciate that with my fear of heights. They're on all fours, you know, barely inching across. And this other guy's full of freedom, you know, "Ah, I got freedom. And they're running up and down the bridge, bouncing the bridge, and the guy's like hanging on. And the point of Romans 14 is, don't be that guy. You've got freedom, that's great. Enjoy your freedom, but don't use your freedom in such a way that it, that it hurts someone else. And so he begins to talk about it in Romans 14, 1 through 12. He talks about, you know, don't criticize or judge other people. And then beginning in verse 13, he talks about, and I love the way he turns from the negative to the positive. You know, in in 1 through 12, it's all about don't do this, don't do that. But then he begins to talk about what you should do. And I like the way the, the Bible always kind of reinforces the negative with the positive because we aren't to be defined by the negatives. So here's what you do. Rather than judging other people for where they are, Limit your liberty. And that's the first principle that really comes out. And man, I can't think of a more relevant word for our generation because the hue and cry of our generation is, give me my rights. I demand my rights. You owe it to me for me to live my rights. And it's all about rights. No wonder we live in such a moral, emotional wasteland. Because if everybody, if you get your rights, then how do I get mine? And eventually that need for everybody getting their own way is going to clash in conflict. There's a better way. The Bible says, enjoy your liberty, but be willing to limit your liberty for the benefit of others. In other words, you got to get a yield sign and you got to put it in your heart. Yes, I have this right, but what does this right do to someone else? There comes a time where I've got to yield or we're going to have a wreck. And verse 13, so let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you'll not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Now, I said last time, and we've been talking about this, and the funny thing is we talked about this last time. Number one, I don't presume you were here last time because the average Baptist comes to church twice a month. Number two, I don't presume you were listening last time And number three, if you were listening, I figure you forgot already. They say that the average sermon is forgotten by the time you get to the car. That's pretty demoralizing for guys like me, you know? So let's go over it again. The issue that they dealt with was meat. And it came down in a couple of different ways. The Jews, now this isn't like today where you've got vegans and vegetarians and it's all dietary. This was spiritual stuff. So the Jews had these very strict dietary standards when it came to meat. They couldn't any lar- eat any large animals that didn't have a cloven hoof and that chewed the cud. So they could eat cow, they could eat beef, they could eat lamb, they could eat uh, you know, deer, that kind of stuff. They, they couldn't eat uh, horses and things like that. Um, they couldn't eat birds of prey or scavengers. They couldn't eat any seafood that didn't have scales and fins. So, Louisiana, you're out. No crawfish, no fried shrimp, no boiled shrimp, no catfish. They couldn't eat anything with a paw. Can't eat squirrel or rabbit. I don't know what we would do. Louisiana could never be Jewish, I guess. But, you know, uh, they couldn't eat uh, dairy and meat in the same meal, so no cheeseburgers or Pizza or anything like that. But on top of that, there were some very strict laws about how the meat was prepared. And so what the Jews did living in that ancient Roman world, they could never be quite certain of the meat. You know, was it prepared properly? These people aren't living in Jerusalem. They're living in Rome. And so those customs became such that they said, well, I'm just going to stop eating meat. And so now they become Christians and they come into the church and it's difficult to give up those old Mosaic traditions and they're bringing them with them. And so they see another person eating meat and they struggle with that. And so there's kind of a back and forth going on there over the issue of meat. Now, uh, the, the Greeks had a completely different problem with meat. Their problem was that they lived in this world of idolatry and, and people would bring these animals. Animals and sacrifice them in these pagan temples, and then the temple priests would sell the meat on the open market. And the meat that had been uh, sacrificed to animal to, to the the pagan gods uh, was considered to be a better form of meat because it had some sort of magical essence. And so, when I ate that that uh, temple meat, I was actually getting some sort of you know spiritual infusion. Now Christians are coming out of that idolatry and they don't want any part of it. And they go over to visit you at your house and you bring out some meat and you're like, man, this is the good meat. This is the temple meat, you know? And they're like, uh, no, I can't, I, I, I can't eat that, you know? And then they don't know which meat is what. And so it became a big problem. They just stopped eating meat. Okay. And Paul deals with that exhaustively in first Corinthians, particularly in chapter eight, we don't have time to get into that, but, uh, he uses this repeated expression in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, all things are lawful. He says it two different times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me. Do you get that? Do you get the freedom you have in grace? All things are lawful. I'm no longer under the constraints of Mosaic tradition. I don't have to worry about meat given to idols because I understand that there's no such thing as an idol. So the meat that goes through the temple is still just meat. All things are lawful for me, he says. But notice what he says. Not all things are profitable. All things are lawful. Not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, just because I can do it doesn't mean I should do it. All things aren't profitable, I'm not going to be mastered by. You know, there are freedoms we have that are, are, I can go anywhere and spend whatever I want on whatever I want to buy up to a point. But if I spend everything I have all the time, then that freedom will become bondage. And I'll be mastered by my need for material possessions. If you spend more than you make, you're going to go broke. I don't care how much you make. And so I have to limit some of my freedoms because not all things are profitable. But then he uses it again in chapter 10, verse 23 in a slightly different way. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful. Now watch this but not all things edify. And that word edify means to build up. It actually has at its root the idea of a house being constructed. All things are lawful, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And so here's his point. I must use my freedom responsibly so that my actions don't tear down what God wants to build up. And here's the point we have to understand. Sometimes our freedom can have unintended consequences. I mean, we don't have a meat problem. But there was certainly a problem with that meat. It could have unintended consequences. If you're Jewish and you think that you have to follow the Mosaic tradition and this other guy eats it, then it, it's creating a conflict in his heart. There's unintended conflict. And you start to think, well, we don't have the meat problem. Where's our problem today? And I would say probably where we live in the South right now, the, the equivalency for us would be the concept of drinking. Uh, now, you know, the idea of drinking alcohol is not a big deal in, in, in probably most cultures today. I remember when I was pastoring in Houston, I baptized this guy named Andrew Sunderman, big German guy, came out of the Lutheran church, 6'6", 325, played a year for the Raiders. I asked the guy, I said, did you meet our newest member? He said, meet him. There was a small eclipse. Andrew's a big guy. Took two of us to baptize him. And Andrew and I were having lunch one day, and Andrew's like, you know, he had come from Gabon, Africa, where he was working. He was coming through Europe. He said, I came into a McDonald's in Europe, and they had beer. Can you believe it? They had beer. He said, I couldn't believe it, man. I've been in Gabon, Africa, and there's beer at McDonald's. Isn't that awesome? I said, well, Andrew, I don't drink. He was like, what? You Are you kidding me? He said, you tell me right now, somebody puts a cold beer right in front of you, you're not going to drink it. No, I don't drink it. I don't drink it. You see, in his culture, the German culture, that's no big deal. But in the South, in the Southern United States, where we've had the temperance movement for years, and we've heard sermons on drinking, drinking sinful, and this and that, um, it becomes a different thing for people. So let's ask, is it sinful to drink? And the answer is not that i know of it's sinful to get drunk don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the spirit i can't find anything that says it's sinful to drink man i've looked <laughs> it'd be so much easier man that's just a sin stop that you know it doesn't say that in fact jesus turned water into wine And i've heard baptist preachers try to say it was grape juice it was wine stop that don't do that it's dumb Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. So it's not a sin to drink. So why don't I drink? Well, lots of reasons. Number one, I I don't need it to have a good time. I I don't really like the taste. There's a lot of other beverages I like more like Coke and Powerade and whatever. One of the big reasons is my family's predisposed to alcoholism. Um, It's marked my whole life. I lost a brother at 62. I lost a grandmother at 56. My dad died at 68, so it's been something of a battle in my family my whole life. But most importantly for me, my drinking might have unintended consequences. I'm out fishing, and I got a new believer in the boat, and he's at the front of a boat, and I pull out my ice chest, and, hey, brother, you want a beer? You got a problem with that? Eh, some of you do. And all of a sudden, maybe this guy, maybe this guy has come up in an environment where drinking has always been considered sinful. Maybe this guy's got a problem with drinking, or he's got a problem with substance abuse. And all of a sudden, my liberty has unintended consequences. Same's true for gambling. I don't gamble because why well, don't I gamble. Well, I don't like the odds. Does the Bible say gambling's a sin? Not that I know of. It says greed's a sin, it says lust is a sin, and a lot of times those two seem to be going together wherever you go to gamble. But at the end of the day, no, it doesn't say gambling's a sin. So why don't I gamble? Well, I don't like the odds. I mean, I I drive by these giant billion-dollar casinos, and I go, you know, they didn't build that by paying winners. They built that on the back of losers. And I'm kind of a loser when it comes to that kind of stuff, so I don't like the odds of that. But even more importantly, the way this thing is, is determined and the, the, the vagarities of it, I, I would hate for there to be unintended consequences. Several years ago, Amy and I were driving home from California. And uh, we wanted to go see the Hoover Dam and we wanted to go see the Grand Canyon. And Vegas is right there by the Hoover Dam. So we, I said, we've never seen Vegas. Let's go by there and we'll check into a hotel. I hear they're cheap. So we go to Vegas and we check into this hotel right across from the Bellagio so we can see the fountain and all that stuff. It's We got there late. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And so I said, let's go walk around and see what's here. And so we go down. And I didn't realize the casinos are in the lobby. You know, it's not like in Louisiana, if you go in a casino, there's a big sign, 21 or older. That's not in Vegas. These guys, The lobby is the casino. And I'm walking through. And to be honest with you, the, the last casino I'd ever been in, I was 17 on a senior trip, and we took a cruise to the Bahamas, and I went into a, a casino in that, on that cruise ship, and I lost $20 in quarters in about five minutes on a slot machine. And that's the last time I've ever gambled. Never even bought a lottery ticket. Not because it's sinful, but because I'm a loser. <laughs> so are you. You're a loser. You just didn't know it. You buy that stuff, you lose. <laughs> it's like, well, I won $6 one time. Yeah, but you put it right back in that machine. Amy and I are walking around. Amy goes, hey, there's a girl on the bar over there in a bikini on the, standing on the bar just walking back and forth. And there's little kids with family walking around. I'm like, what in the world? Where are we? And we turned around, I kid you not, and we looked right into the eyes of a girl from North Monroe's youth group. I'm standing in a casino in Vegas. Uh, uh, uh. (laughs) Maybe said, let's get out of here. We went straight up to our room, went to bed, got up 530 the next morning and leaving Las Vegas. Glad to be gone. Somebody said, how do you like Vegas? I'd rather clean out from under the refrigerator and go back to Vegas. There are shows I don't watch. There are places I don't go. There are words I don't use. Not because I'm not free to do that, but because there are unintended consequences. And that's what Paul's talking about. He said, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. I don't want, to be, I don't want my freedom to be a reason for someone else's failure. Am I free? Sure. Does it edify? Look at verse 14. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat, but if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. And so there are, there are essentially three kinds of sin. There's the sin of commission. That's where God says, don't do this, and you go do that, that's sin. There's the sin of omission, where God says, do this, and you don't do that, then that's sin, uh, James 4, 17. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. That's the sin of omission. But there's a third kind here, the sin of intention. If the actions I do are not necessarily sinful, but if I believe in my heart that they are, and I do those actions, then they do in fact become sinful because the intention of my heart was to sin. And it comes back around to the focus and purpose of the heart. Let's skip down to verse 23. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. So let's go back up to verse 15. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat... You're not acting in love if you eat it. In other words, if he thinks it's sinful to eat that meat and you and your freedom eat that meat with no consideration of the consequences for him, you eat the meat fully free. He thinks it's sin. And so watching you do it, he thinks, well, I guess it's okay to go ahead and sin. And so he eats the meat. And in his case, it becomes sinful. You have then led that guy into sin. It's crazy. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. In other words, limit your liberty for the sake of a... Bro- now, of course, this isn't a mandate to allow people to be perpetually immature, We need to be really careful about not living to the lowest common denominator. That's what they do in our world. They find one exception and then they make a rule for all the exception instead of saying to that one exception, get with the program. I mean, that's what we used to say. You'd have an outlier who just seemed to run counter to the to the crowd and we'd say, get with the program, man. But now it's like, oh, this guy's over here. we got to make a rule that affects everybody for him. I read recently of a school board somewhere up in the north that is no longer going to give Fs as a grade because it makes the children feel like failures. I'm like, he is a failure. He is failing. And not giving him an F isn't going to make him feel successful. It just changes the whole mess. And now you're saying to somebody who's failing, oh, you're really successful. How does that uh, affect his whole concept of success and failure? That's what we do. We'll take an exception and we make a rule for everyone. I, I've read recently this new, stimu- this new uh, package that's going through Congress, this new spending bill that they've got, that one of the things is to mandate, are you ready for this, alcohol monitoring in every car sold in America. They're gonna mandate alcohol monitoring for every, who do you think's gonna pay for that? Well, the car manufacturers aren't gonna pay for it because they'll just pass the cost along to you, which means that every one of us now has to pay for an alcohol monitoring system in any new car that we buy, even though we'll probably never use it. Wouldn't it be smarter just to demand that everybody that gets a DUI has to have an alcohol monitoring system in their car? But what we do is we take the exception and we make it a rule for everyone. And we got to be careful because that's what this sounds like here. Paul's not talking about making someone uncomfortable or causing them to ask questions or having hard conversations. If we limit liberty because someone gets uncomfortable or has some off-the-wall belief that we don't share, then we're headed straight into bondage. I know people that think it's sin to have a Christmas tree. I've had long arguments with the anti-Christmas tree crowd. I'm like, if that's where you are, fine. I'm still going to have one. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was the guy that came up with the Christmas tree idea. So I'm going to have one, okay? So don't get all twisted out of shape. And I hope I'm not causing you to fall into sin. There are people that don't like Halloween. Me and my children and my grandkids are going trick-or-treating. So get over it. You know what I'm saying? Just because it makes you uncomfortable or you have some belief that I don't necessarily subscribe to. What Paul is talking here is about liberty that causes people to sin. I will limit my liberty for the sake of my brother in that case. If my action caused him to fall into sin, then I'm not doing it anymore. Look at verse 16. Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's almost a direct quote from Jesus, Matthew 15, 11. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Who cares what you eat? It's not about eating. It's not about drink. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about where your heart is. Where's your heart? And if my heart is so self-absorbed, that it would say, nobody is going to limit my rights, then your heart is not where it needs to be. Paul said to the Corinthians, if my eating of meat causes my brother to stumble, then I will never eat meat again. We limit our liberty. And there's a reward to it. Let's talk about that. The reward for limiting your liberty. Look at verse 18. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So God is pleased. The word is well pleased. God is well pleased. And and in some translations, New American Standard, it translates it acceptable. You'll be acceptable. But that's really not what that word means. That word means well pleased. You're like, well, why did they translate it acceptable? Because it's a hard concept to get across when you think of the broader implications. When I come to faith in Christ, the Bible says that the sinful person is declared to be the righteousness of Christ. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He becomes the righteousness of Christ. I enter into a relationship with Christ I come into his family as a child of God. That is sealed and permanent. And it also means that I'm fully pleasing to God. Nothing I ever do is going to make God love me anymore. As his child, I'm fully pleasing. Well, I've got a problem here. When I limit my liberty for the sake of my brother, it's pleasing to God. I thought I already was pleasing to God. Well, that's why it's so hard to describe. I mean, it's not like I become more pleasing It's not like I he wasn't pleased. It's just that now that I do these things, he is pleased. I can't explain it. It's the same thing with my kids. You know, my sons, all four of them, fully pleasing to me. Nothing they'll ever do will cause me to love them more. They're fully pleasing to me. But when one of my sons gives up his weekend and drives down to see his grandmother and spends the weekend with his grandmother, I'm pleased. When one of my other sons gives up his weekend and comes up here for the women's event, and he's the only guy in the room except for the guys running the stuff, Jeff, and and he's up here on the stage as the only guy, and he's, he's doing that all Saturday for the sake of our women, I'm pleased for more than one reason. When my, when my son loves his brothers... When my son goes out of his way to help his brothers, when he does something gracious, when he commits himself fully to the needs of someone else, when he's kind, when he's truthful, when I see the marks of Jesus in him, I'm pleased. I wasn't displeased with him, and I'm not more pleased with him. I'm just pleased with him. Can we just leave it at that? And when I limit my rights for your sake, my father is pleased. And it says, you are respected. It says, and others will approve of you. And to me, the word approve goes to the heart of respect. That's something deep and lasting. I, I thought a lot about this as i thought about watching the coaching changes in college and NFL. If a guy wins a championship, we applaud him, we gush over him, we honor his achievement, and then we pay him obscene amounts of money, right? But we don't necessarily respect that guy. I mean, you might receive honor through your performance, but respect is a character thing. You can win a championship one year, two years later you can lose everyone's respect. Compare that coach to that to a guy like Tom Landry. Y'all remember Tom Landry? Is that too old of an illustration? Tom Landry was the legendary coach of the Dallas Cowboys, the second or third winningest coach of all time. He won his championships. He had a lot of losses, but he won his championships. But when we think about Tom Landry, that coach of the Cowboys, and love or hate the Cowboys, but one thing about Tom Landry, the one thing everybody says when they talk about Tom Landry is what? Respect. That guy had so much character that it's not about his wins and losses at the end of the day. What we remember about Tom Landry is his character. It's his heart. And we respect that. Well, the Bible says you may not win. Your performance may not gain you honor and attention and adulation and money, but your character and how you're willing to limit yourself for the sake of others. And when you do that, And live with unselfish love. They may not applaud you, but they'll always tip their hats in respect. Because respect is gained through character, not achievement. And then the final thing is we enjoy peace. Verse 19, so then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. And that word aim for harmony is really we pursue the things which make for peace. You look around our world, why is there so so little peace today? Why is everybody so angry? Why is everybody so furious? And here it is. Today, people want their way more than they want peace. I mean, they'll talk about they wish they had peace. What happened to America? Why are we so divided? Oh, I wish for the good old days when everybody just got along. And we talk about peace and we act like we want peace. But here's the problem. We want our way more than we want peace. It happens in churches too. You see a church that's all divided and torn apart. You know what they're always talking about? Oh, I wish that we could all just get along. But then go to one of their business meetings. I've been in business meetings in churches where they're trying to figure out the budget for the coming year. It took one night, another night, another night. And finally they gave it up and they said, we got to postpone this because it's ruining everybody's Christmas. We'll come back and hit it in January. You guys know you've heard stories, and they all wish they had peace. They look at a church that's harmonious and they go, Why can't we be like them? And the answer is because you want your way more than you want peace. And that's the problem. When we limit our liberty, we gain peace. Look at verse 20 Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Good grief. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it's wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they've decided is right. In other words, it's blessed to be free in grace. But, and here's 23 again, if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you're not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you're sinning. So here's the bottom line. The health of my brother is more important than my personal freedom. And building up my brother is more important than getting my way. And so if my freedom would cause you to stumble... I'll never exercise that freedom again. I know that's a hard teaching. It's hard to wrap your head around. It's hard to get your heart around. But it calls us to a higher place. It calls us to something higher. You see, when someone says you should get your way, they're calling you to something lower. I'm calling you to something higher. And the only place to get somewhere higher there's only one way to get there. It's to die. That's why Jesus said, whoever would find his life must lose it. If we want to live, truly live, we got to be willing to die. That's the essence of what it means to be a follower. of Jesus. You know, back to Tom Landry, you know what he said about coaching? He said, I have one of the hardest jobs in the world because my job is to get a group of 22 people to do what they hate so that they can gain the thing they want more than anything else in life. Sometimes we got to die to reach those higher places. And sometimes that means giving up my freedom in order to achieve God's purpose. You willing to do that? You willing to call yourself to that? We get grace through Jesus, that personal relationship. And then we live grace as the Holy Spirit begins the work of change and transformation in our life. And a big part of that is giving grace. And there are people in your life who are going to need grace. But for you to give them that grace, you got to sacrifice something of yourself. You ready for that? That's our commitment. Let's make it right now. Every head bowed. We're before the Lord. Here it is. Father. I commit to you that I will limit my freedom for the sake of my brother. Father, we understand this isn't a mandate to live to the lowest common denominator. It's not, it's not finding that that one outlier and then making rules that fit him. It's not about preference and it's not about just what people's personal Ideas are, but it's a, it's at the core that I don't want to do anything that's going to cause my brother to stumble. And like Paul, we say to you right now: If my eating of meat would cause a brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. And and Father, help us to mean that. We're going to be people who give grace. And so, Father, we commit to you that in those moments, we're going to die to ourselves so that Christ may live through us. Help us, Father, to reach these higher places. Let your Holy Spirit free us from the bondage and the chains of this earth to run counter to what's natural so that we please you, so that our character is remembered with honor. And so that we make for the things that cause peace. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.